following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Hello and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. Today we are broadcasting from Pod 2 at Rock Lidditz, the Rock Lidditz campus here in beautiful Lidditz, Pennsylvania. We are broadcasting from Rock Lidditz in Lidditz, Pennsylvania because we are present at this year's 2019 Event Safety Summit. This podcast is brought to you by Real Media, so thank you to Real Media for sponsoring this. And I'm thrilled to be in the presence not only of a live audience, but also our friends Eric Stewart and Emma Parkinson, who you would never know is British. We, we are also being joined with engineering support from Ethan Gilson wearing the headset and Jacob Warwick standing behind over there, who is making sure I say all the things that I'm supposed to. So with that, here's what we're going to talk about today for the Event Safety Podcast. There is a conundrum in the industry, and the conundrum seems to thwart lots of good, smart, well-meaning people who host events that don't have all seats everywhere. The term is general admission, and somehow these general admission events have caused this consternation. How could we possibly create safe spaces that that pedestrians could navigate without falling over other people, other people's crap, walking around in the dark and and walking into objects. What could we possibly do so that if there was a message that we could convey that message to all these people who otherwise would be lost wandering in the dark? Is there some way of solving this riddle? And I think the answer is yes. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So let me pose the question now, and let's see who picks up the mic. The question is, is there anything at all that can be done to make a general admission show safe for people to walk around without falling down? Emma's reaching for the mic. If we say no, this could be a really short podcast, right? (laughs) Do I still get a drink ticket? Um, Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously, absolutely. There's a whole range of measures that are available. Um, I think before we start to look at just general admission, we think about who are we admitting? What is the profile of this crowd? What do they need? Because at the heart of everything we do with crowd safety, we've learned that rather than imposing conditions on our audience, we're going to get a greater degree of success if we analyse what they want, what's going to make the show work for them, what's going to make the show run for them, and then we work within those conditions. So, you know, it will change if you've got a room full of teenagers having their first beer for the very first time. They're going to need a whole different set of guidance and structures and rules from a Cliff Richard audience who are seeing their 78th gig and, you know, they know where their handbag and their teeth are, but not much else. Right, so, you know, first analyse your audience. Uh, yeah, I can't agree any anymore. You've got to start... We, we always talk about the profile, the demographic. That's going to feed from who the artist is. So start right there. Who's my artist? Who does my artist attract? If I know the people that are coming, I can start to uh, begin to understand the likely behaviours. And I think the important thing to remember is We've got to understand those behaviours through the different phases of the event, ultimately the ingress, the circulation during the show, and that's what we're talking about, that circulation. 
and then the egress, and then the evacuation. If we don't understand the demographic of that crowd in real detail, then we're going to get it wrong right from the start. And, and Emma makes the joke about the, the Cliff Richard crowd, but there's big assumptions that a Cliff Richard crowd and a Tom Jones crowd, because they're the same age, same era, same almost genre of music, will behave in a similar way. And actually, they don't. The Tom Jones crowd are pretty wild. These are maybe ladies of a certain age who should know better, and I can sack off most of my security but replace them with a lot more medical because I know I'm going to need that medical. Let's face it, my 19-year-old with a sticking plaster cannot deal with a dislocated hip, and that's what I'm looking at later on that night. So let's start right there. That's our most important thing. Who is coming and what and how are they going to behave? All right, so if you know who's coming, so let's, let's lay a foundation, like we're building a, a, you know, any kind of building. So foundation, the first brick, know who's coming. Okay, now we know who's coming. It's whoever is coming. What's next? Understand the cultural behaviour of that audience and how the artist is going to influence them. So what is the artist going to be asking of that audience? What is the artist going to be um, inciting that audience to do? What are the traditional touchstone behaviours of that audience? You know, so are you looking at cultural behaviour like... A mosh? Are you looking at freedom of movement? Are you looking at a band that hasn't played for 10 years and everybody wants to get to the front? Are you looking at a band that's on its very last declared gig? So the urge to be right there, right at the beginning for the whole experience is going to change how people move, how they use the space, how they interact with the artist. Are you looking at a gig where there are little cultural touch points all the way through the show where, for no obvious good reason, halfway through the gig, half the audience are going to lie flat on the floor? And I have seen it. Um, you know, so first, you've got the foundation, who is coming? Then second, what are they actually going to do that you can know about, that you can predict? What intelligence do you have on that artist so that you can start to build the framework of how your show is going to look? Yeah, and, and one step further to that, can you build a relationship either with the artist or the artist people that will give you the clues that you need? And we've been told time and time again... The artist is what the artist is, and he'll do or she will do what they want to do as and when they want to. And we know that's not true. We know that these things are pretty much rehearsed. They're not as spontaneous as they appear. And if we talk to the artist or the artist people and we can get through, I have no problem with an artist who wants to crowd surf to the bar at the back of an indoor arena and have a pint whilst he's still hanging in midair and then surf all the way back drinking that beer as long as they'll give me a clue which song that's coming in. Because I can then prepare for that. And if five or 10,000 people all think that's an amazing surprise, great. As long as there's about 10 or 15 of us that know that that was going to happen <laughs> and when it was going to happen, I have no problem. And, and people have heard me speak earlier on this week. We had a, an event, or we have an artist in the UK at the moment whose chant when he comes on stage is no pyro, no party. And that's a chant that is joined in really quickly by his audience. They're soccer fans, they're based in the north of England, and that's his chant when he comes on, and they follow him, and then suddenly out of all the pockets appear the smoke and the pyro. And we had him in a non-appropriate context for that behaviour. Not that you would say there's any appropriate context, but this particular one wasn't. We had him appearing last year. We put a message through the team to speak to him. He contacted us back and agreed and then pushed out on Facebook, Twitter and all his social media to say, 
this is not our party, this is a mixed party, this is other people that are coming as well who won't understand what we do on our private gigs, so let's not do it that night. And they didn't. 10,000 people of his fans mixed with 30,000 other fans, not a single piece of pyro, no chant, nothing to encourage that kind of behaviour. And I think we can be braver and ask those questions of artists and the artist contacts. Yeah, and I think what, what we're getting at here from understanding the audience and then understanding the artist, it's back to those basic principles of risk assessment, who might be harmed and how. So what we're doing is we're starting every show by building those concepts of risk and making them proportionate. You know, a lot of people see crowd management as the kind of, we're the health and safety people who come in with the clipboards and we lay this great big thick layer of safety buttercream over the top of your show. Um, But actually that can be really expensive. You might not want it. It might not culturally suit your audience. There's no point smothering your audience with safety measures and security if in doing so you destroy your, your gig, your environment, your culture. Um, so it's about being proportionate about that risk um, in the context that it is being expressed. All right, so I, I'm playing Steve the Builder again. So if the first building block is knowing your crowd, is the second building block essentially finding out through the advanced process what the artist is likely to do and knowing your audience's demographic to know how they're likely to respond? Yeah, so you can't build anything without intelligence, and intelligence comes from a remarkable range of sources. There is, there is broad industry intelligence, such as things like an extreme value analysis, where we're looking at what is the worst that could happen, but what is the most frequent and likely type of accident you're going to have. You're looking at intelligence by knowing the artists, knowing their fans, knowing their people, which you can get by observing them, by learning from past gigs where that's happened, from their people, from their management and their crew. There's often external sources of intelligence because let's not forget, it's not just the event itself which is the intrinsic risk. There is an external risk to all our crowds as well. And there are these sources of intelligence that can come from the wider law enforcement community and so forth. So it's about building that really rich picture. And I think there's there's a live situation developed in the last 48 hours while we've been out here that Emma and I were talking about this morning. In, we have a, we're really fortunate we have one of our police forces in the UK that has agreed to host an intelligence cell. It's called the National Events Intelligence Unit. For those that are from the UK or work in the UK, they'll be aware of it. It's only a couple of officers who are always feeding information from us. They're sucking information from us that we can then get shared out again. And, and while we've been out here, we've had two incidents. We've had a flare thrown in a music a scenario, a music concert where a woman's been injured, so they've done a whole lot of research and said, where are that band and other bands that those people follow, where are they actually going to be performing for the next week or two, so people can be aware and we can start increasing the security levels. But also today we've had new notification that a particular band that nobody had much interest in, a US band, who are arriving in the UK tonight had been in Europe and had been targeted really heavily by a gang who are stealing people's mobile phones during the course of the show. Now, that's theft, that's criminality. But for me, that's public safety as well, because that's anything up to, from history, we know from these shows, indoor shows of just 5,000, up to 200 people losing their cell phones during the course of the night. That's 200 kids that are now going home without the emergency communication they thought they were going to have when they left home that morning and their parents thought they were going to have. So we've had that 
update in the last few hours, that's gone into all the venues where we know these bands are playing over the next four or five nights, and that is really helping us out. And it's something that we'd like to see spread across the world. It's certainly spreading across Europe. We'd like to see that spread further with law enforcement agencies taking our intelligence, sanitising it in a way that they can make it legal to share but then pushing that information out so that we then benefit from the rest of our organization's intelligence. That's what we're trying to aspire to. All right. So knowing your venue, knowing your crowd, having intelligence, what's next? I would say you don't know your venue yet. You know your crowd, you know your artist, but you don't know your venue yet. So there's your next building block. Ah. What have you got to play with? Is it a greenfield site? Is it a dedicated music site? Is it a repurposed sports arena? Is it a shopping mall activation? I'm just actually shuddering quietly at the mere prospect of that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, So know your space. That's next. Know the limitations of your space. Know its, know its capabilities. Know its extent. Know its limitations. And then you get into the world of design. What design are you going to have to bring into your venue? What are you going to have to design out of your venue? Um, and start to look at the working space. So there is an outdoor festival. It's essentially a greenfield festival. And nothing can be done. It's a greenfield festival. God made it green grass on dirt, and that's all she wrote. Is that so? Or is there more that can be done to make a safer environment? Again, I refer to my earlier answer. If that was so, I'd be short of work. And I am not short of work. So, So, what, what can be done? So, go back to what we talked about. Get to know your site and get to know your crowd and then mix that together. We have a peculiar phenomenon in one of our parks in central London. Uh, British Summertime put in a two-week concert every year and it's a huge field. Everybody wants to be near the front or most people want to be near the front. But because it's a royal park in central London, it's crisscrossed by one and a half yard tarmac paths which nobody sits on during the show. Nobody tells them not to. Nobody marks it off. There's no high-vis tape or security guards patrolling telling them not to sit there. They sit on the grass and people can walk freely across around about 20 or 25 pathways that crisscross that site. Because the type of people that come into that royal park for that show at that high standard kind of have this self-respect for what is obviously something that you walk on rather than something that you sit on. They're the easy ones. And seeing it for the first time is pretty peculiar when you're expecting to see the audience right up to the front of stage. But there are obviously a whole batch of things that we can do. What we don't want to do is to have that argument again and again and again that says there's nothing that can be done. Not when we've killed people at the front of stage in crushers. You know, we go back to 74 in the UK with the David Cassidy concert where Bernadette Whelan, 14 years old, goes to a concert and never comes home because there was insufficient crowd management at the front of stage. We go to the Monsters of Rock, Donington Park, where a crowd surge leads to people falling down at the front of stage and being buried in mud. We shouldn't be doing this anymore. And we go to Roskilde, where they had a tragic accident in Europe where nine people died at the front of stage. Go and tell Roskilde that there's nothing that can be done about it. And you're going to 
fly through the nearest window pretty damn quickly because they took that pain on, they dealt with it, they now have an incredibly good complex but good barrier, barricade system all around the area that keeps people safe and keeps them separated into numbers that are of sufficiently low density that it's much, much harder. Even if they try to kill themselves, they're going to really struggle to do it. So there are tons of stuff that can be done. And I think it's about segmenting those problems within that design phase. So there's a temptation to believe that once your audience are in, that's it, they're in. And circulation is somehow this magically discrete phase that doesn't suffer the same problems as ingress and egress. So we're looking at really sort of two types of movement almost effectively. We've got that front of stage where we do focus the majority of our resources because, you know, a nice piece of mojo barrier looks like it does a job and it's great. And the guards at the front, it's quite an easy problem to solve. But you've also got those dynamic movements, especially if you're at a multi-stage venue, a multi-site venue, a venue where there's going to be a lot of movement between merchandise and the front line or where there's going to be a star making an appearance. So you're looking at both the pressure of the crowd and the movement of the crowd as a whole, but you're also looking at those dynamic movements. And we tell ourselves that in crowd safety, we're stopping two things. We're stopping the mass buildup of people and we're stopping the sudden movement of those people. So take it right back to those design basics and work out what you need to design into and out of your venue to achieve those two objectives. So one of the things that I always have to deal with is cost. So I like to start with things that are cheap, that we already have. So one of the things that I've seen, I went to a a discussion by the good folks from Walmart yesterday here at, at the Event Safety Summit, and they talked about putting tape on the floor tape to mark out lanes segregating where people could sit from where they could walk. What do you think about tape as something that you have? Is that something that can be used? Depends entirely what you want to use it for, but I've seen it used really successfully around the edges of venues to just maintain walkways. And I've seen it used incredibly successfully at Arlington because the context of the people that are going to the National Cemetery, they're not going to push and shove and jump queues. There is literally a lineup that goes up, down, up, down, up, down. And you might end up waiting 20 minutes for the bus that will take you on to the heart of the cemetery. But people just follow those strips of painted lines up and down the ground. It's about the the context. Would I want to do that for other demographic audiences? Maybe not. But we quite often use pin and rope. We'll quite often use lightweight barrier. We'll build it up depending on the queue, depending on the people, depending on their attitude, and depending on, A, their level of enthusiasm, and B, how much we enthuse them. And that's part of the problem sometimes. We want the kids to be excited. We want the kids to have fun. We want them to be in a state of mind where they want to make the objective, which is the front of stage. And if we give them too much encouragement, we actually create the situations that we should be avoiding. And you can take that further. I mean, there are very directive ways of managing crowds where we put in lines and cues and tape, but there's also how we design problems out of our environment and how we design things into our environment that make the crowd do what we want them to do without them ever realising that that was our objective in the first place. So whether that's the tenants of your audience to bear to the left or the right, the tenants of your audience to head towards something bright and shiny on the horizon. So um, I have one particular stage... Uh, field. It's in the round. Um, it's a field that potentially could have 45, 50,000 people in it, in the round. It doesn't fill evenly across the site. 
I end up with pockets of overfill. So we simply looked at the structural approaches to that field, looked at how we directed people through that field. We couldn't make them walk where we wanted, but we could put a really brightly lit bar where we wanted them to go and drag them across that field by the sheer power of alcohol. Um, and it worked like a charm. I had two crowds that previously ran into each other. We put a bar in the eye line of both entrances in the direction we wanted them to walk. Magic happened. Yeah, I mean, look, look at you. You all found this space because it's brightly lit. You know, the, it's like a beacon coming from inside. I'm sure the alcohol's irrelevant. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so on the subject of light, you know, we know that people are drawn to light. Personally, I think air stars are cool. You know, those nice balloons that, you know, basically are just floating in the sky. Can those help influence where people walk on what is otherwise a greenfield site? Yeah, it doesn't have to be air balloons. Festoon lighting does a really good job as well and, and is a darn sight cheaper when it comes to arguing with promoters and production teams about cost. And if you know you have a crowd which generally feels heavier left than right because of the way the site's set up or just because of people's human nature tend to drift that way, if you illuminated the right-hand side of the field 50% or even 30% more than the left, you would drag more people that way. Because we are creatures that, despite everything, our old anxieties are sometimes still there and darkness is one of those things that people are less comfortable in. So, yeah, put your starlights up, park my, my uh, lighting up down that side and we will pull people in that direction. It can make a difference. And if you want super, super cheap, cut the path into the grass that you want them to follow. I've seen it done, and Emma's seen it done many a time. Just leave the grass elsewhere that little bit longer, but the direction you want them to go in, you take a two-yard wide mower and you cut that grass nice and short, and they'll follow it. We are kind of sheepish sometimes <laughs> in our behaviours. And, you know, let's be honest, we use that. We do. I don't need to evacuate 10,000 people and persuade all 10,000 they need to go. I need to persuade the first couple of hundred, because once I've done that, the rest will start to follow. And it may be that the follow, when we open the gates, is a couple of security guards or stewards or volunteers that walk forward through the gates with them and then veer to the right first and follow that cut path. People will naturally follow it. They'll go with them. So why don't we do that more often? How about signage? So... Eric, when you were doing your crowd management symposium here earlier this week, you referred to lollipop signs, which is a term I had not heard before and then immediately thought, what could that be? And then I realized it's a stick with a round sign on top. Duh. How is signage at directing people who otherwise would be walking around an undifferentiated greenfield site? Uh, signage is great, but I'm going to broaden the picture out here again. So um, we've already talked about design. The next phase we would talk about in crowd management is information. Um, signage is one part of your information picture. Um, yes, of course, signage is absolutely helpful. Put it in the right place. Use the language that matters. Make it clear and simple. One of the least effective signages I've ever seen was somebody who spent hours marking out a bus station at a live event at a festival Five different pens for five different bus routes. They spent hours building the most beautiful and intricate Disney systems in the world. And they spent ages creating gorgeous big signs for it. And then they mounted them at hip height on the bike rack. 
And what's the main feature of crowds? Not so invisible. Um, and all of a sudden, days and days of work was just completely useless. So where are they going? What are they saying? How are you illuminating them? Days of work and thousands of pounds or dollars. Yeah, Somebody's totally. put an awful lot of time in there. And, and it's just reminded me, I've just seen two colleagues walk in uh, who run a major international event that those in Europe will know very well that has a major attraction from people from dozens and dozens of different countries. And their problem is the language of the signage. That's why we try to use pictograms more often than not. And when you talked earlier about the lollipop that we use, it's pretty basic. It's red on one side and it's green on the other. And most of us drive and we know what red and green means in those environments. Just a red sign suddenly appearing in front of you or as we've done at night going down a slope, security guards, stewards and volunteers sometimes standing waving a red torch in the air all in a long line indicates to all those people three, four, five hundred metres coming down the hill that there's a stop sign ahead and they stop. It's incredible to see it happen. You think it maybe won't. You think some of your people will push through, but they don't. They suddenly see a line of red lights and they stop. It's incredible to see. But this isn't all the information. If that's the only information you're giving a large-scale audience, then you've got a fight on your hands. You know, the, the better you can equip that audience to know what to do from arriving at your venue, from entering into your venue through your ticketing ingress system, whatever that might be, how you expect them to behave inside your venue, you can tailor that to be appropriate. You can, again, it's back to this rich picture. You can't just throw small things at it. It's about creating a whole environment. Are you giving them a safety video? Is that safety video relevant? Um, I have a colleague in Germany who was struggling to get safety information to younger crowds in mosh pits because they didn't want authority. They didn't want to be told what to do. Um, so he made a safety video where he took his own children and dressed them in oversized security uniforms. And the children lectured the young punks in the mosh pit. They thought it was hilarious. It was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. And everybody watched it and everybody engaged with it. And you got a really serious safety message over in a really appropriate way. Um, and again, so it's not just signage. It's, it's how are you getting that information? How are you conveying it? It might be the pre-show information. It might be what's printed on the back of the ticket. It might be the social media campaign. You engage in with the audience before the show. All of these things are important. And yes, sure, emergency exit signs lit up. They're the very last thing in our signage armory. There's a lot you can do before you get to that final sign. And it's when you put those signs up as well. You know, you've heard me talk about this before. When my audience is drunk, drugged, at night, in the dark, heading home at a density of four or five people per square yard, that's not much good for then, then to be looking at signage. We do experiments and we show people walk, these light walking in crowds and when they're at that density, the only thing they're looking at is their feet to try to stop them falling over and tripping other people. So we will always have the signage in position in the morning when they're relatively sober, when it's daylight, when it's dry and warm, hopefully, and they're going through that phase that we call information hungry. They arrive on your site desperate for information. And what they really want to know is where are the bars, where are the washrooms, and what time does the show start? And you tell them that, but interspersed with that information, you point out some of the signage that they may need later on at night. And using those techniques, 
we overcome your favourite thing, Steve, the reticular activation system. We get that little piece of the brain switched on, ticking away, and all day, without even realising it, they're, they're automatically processing the information that we've given them that will become more helpful later on tonight. I've seen today, I'm a, I'm a bit of a technophobe. I'm even slightly older than Steve. I know that's hard to believe, but I am. But I've seen an app today that I thought was probably still some years away. The fact that I'm on an app sitting in Rocklitz and those that are listening to this now as a recording and weren't at the Event Safety Summit, more fool you, because you've missed something quite spectacular today. When someone kills the lights and the phone on, on my desk in front of me flashes a message to say, sorry guys, there's a power cut, two seconds later it flashes and shows me the map with the exit route for me to get to, and then it turns the torch on on my cell phone, which spooks me completely, and I didn't really like that was a step too far for an old guy like me, but what an incredible app to do that and show me the way to the door live. I just think, you know, there's so many exciting technologies out there. We've really got to start looking and investing in those things. It was great. But before we go for the big technology, don't forget that one badly placed sign can ruin your whole system. You know, one unexpected point where you're slightly tired and emotional, shall we say, audience, suddenly is confronted with a decision, can stop your entire crowd flow. So it's not just about what you put in. Sometimes it's about what you don't. So I, I can hear, you know, some lawyer listening to this podcast because that's my world. Some lawyers listening to this podcast and saying, okay, Emma Parkinson, Eric Stewart, you're listing, you're listing all these different things. Are you saying that all of these things are required in order to safely operate an event on a general admission field or greenfield site? May I refer you to my earlier comment about risk assessment? Everything should be proportionate. We have, we have two things to consider. What is reasonable? What is proportionate? You know, we start from a basis of risk assessment because it might make lawyers rich, but it will make the rest of us very poor. So you don't throw everything at it. That would be ridiculous. It would be onerous. It would be onerous for the producer. It would be extremely onerous for the audience. They come to our events to feel free, to forget their world, to have a great time. They don't come to our events to be told what to do and marshaled. You know, if we apply that theory to our live events, we will kill them stone dead. And with them, the money that enables us to hire the lawyers in the first place. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Imagine a a world without lawyers. Sorry, Steve. In my defence, I'm married to a barrister. (laughs) There was a wise man that once told me, I think around about five years ago, that we had to act reasonably in our circumstances. Sounds familiar, Steve? And that's what we have to do. If this is a $5 million show, there's no reason why we can't spend several thousand pounds on that signage. If this is a $500 local charity show, we can't put... $1,000 worth of signage up, and we don't need to. We shouldn't need to. We act reasonably in our circumstances for whatever that show is. And we've had this discussion many a time. There is a huge overreaction in parts of the world now on matters of counter-terrorism, 
and huge amounts of money being diverted into that. And that's not new money that's being created anywhere. It's money that's being taken out of the other safety pots. It's being taken away from signage and stewards and security and crowd management. And we need to redress that balance. But it's about us acting reasonably and proportionate to that show and the risk of that show. That's what we need to try and redress. My, my heart is swelling because I, I heard the word reasonably and under the circumstances, used correctly even. It's fantastic. It's, it's extremely gratifying. You should all try it. It's wonderful. So let's wrap up this event safety podcast by posing the question with which we began. Is it possible to operate an event in a general admission environment in such a way that people don't have to wander around in the dark with no means of safe passage through the field without bumping into objects or people? Is there some way of doing that? Which events have you been going to? Because I go to a remarkable number where none of those things ever happen. So clearly the answer is yes. Yeah, we could invent some things like um, what, maybe a golden circle or a diamond circle or zones that people go into different parts of. And I don't care what you call them. You can call them fancy things and charge a bit more money. But if it separates crowds into safer groups, we can do that. You know, there's a reason why... For years, we've had the primary barrier, and then we had the secondary barrier, and sometimes we have the tertiary barrier. Because even Mojo, as good as it is, trying to hold back a crowd of 100,000 that's just been generated into some sort of surge from rear to front will not hold. It will break. And if metal's breaking, chances are so are bones. We can't afford to let that happen. And if we can put in a primary followed by a secondary... And if we need to, a tertiary barrier system. And if we have split thrusts, if we break it down into segments, there are lots and lots and lots of things we can do. And you see so many really good systems implemented around the world now, some better than others, but those that are segmenting crowds. And I always hear the story, if you do that, you'll ruin the show. But those gigs are still selling out. Ross Kilder's just had its best year again having split the crowds into smaller segments to make them safer. Nobody's walked away from Ross Kilder. They're going back and they feel safer and they're coming out safer at the end of it. Yeah, we can do that. And it's not just about the structures. How are you going to manage those structures? Get the right people to do the right job. And again, they don't have to be highly paid. A lot of people at Lilith yesterday had that security experience where they felt the difference between poor security and well-managed security and it's the same with your crowd safety you know get those people who are running those barriers to understand their role understand their job understand everything from extraction to observation but customer service and recognizing when the crowd are happy when the crowd are in trouble and that spreads all the way through the venue so it's it's the physical structures and it's the way we staff them it, it sounds like there's almost a holistic experience here that we can be paying attention to because we actually have most of the resources that we've been discussing here and those that we don't have readily on hand are pretty inexpensive. And to borrow a term from emergency management, this is integrated crowd management. That's exactly what it is. It's integrating across the piece. So integrated crowd management. I like the sound of that. So with that, 
Let's leave you here with integrated crowd management. I think we have beaten this one to death. I thought this was a simple issue until somebody posed it to me as if it was an intractable problem, you know, a Rubik's Cube of exponential proportions. So I'm glad to know that it's not. So thank you, Emma Parkinson, Coventry University in the UK. Thank you very much. Thank you to Eric Stewart from Gentian Events, also in the UK. Thank you, Ethan Gilson, for helping us with sound. Thank you for Jacob Warwick, always. Thank you to Real Media for sponsoring this. Thank you to you here in our audience at Pod 2 at Rock Lidditz in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, at the Event Safety Summit. Thank you, gentle listeners. I'm Steve Edelman. Be safe out there. <laughs>